Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Qu'ils sont beaux les pieds. Hello, my wife. Hello, John. <laughs> it's another week, mm -hmm. and uh, we've completed The Magician's Nephew last time. Right. So we're on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe after you extracted as much as you possibly could out of the magician's nephew you squeezed it for all it's worth no there's a lot more there than, than we got out actually <laughs> such as <laughs> the notion that all of narnia is a garden right right um mm -hmm. and uh and therefore the garden is this this walled garden notion runs through the entire series that's true so, yeah. mm -hmm. and we're going to point that we'll, out we'll get that a lot more when we get to the last battle right right Okay, so we're on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and that is book two, if you're going in canonical order. Right. And you you saw something on that, huh? Yeah, we were looking up an article on on the garden in Lewis's work. Right. And we found out that reading it in the order in which it makes sense canonically, mm -hmm. that is like, as in the canon of the Bible, I, I'm right. assuming that's what they mean. Yeah, So the Genesis story would be would be the first the story, the creation nephew. story. Mm -hmm. So that would be the magician's nephew. And then the very next one in terms of temporal order would be Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the horse and his boy, and then Prince Caspian, Voyage. and then so on through the order, right. the normal order. And then the end of Narnia is the last battle. Is the last battle. And th the opposite order is the publication order, right? And there are schools of thought amongst C.S. Lewis fans um, as to which is the proper order. And the one you read, he was pretty... Oh, yeah. He was... <laughs> I, we read an article by a man that was dead set against reading it in canonical order, um, at least initially, he said, right. because that's not the order in which Lewis's understanding of the thing unfolded. Right, his thoughts unfolded. Right. Because he wrote it as the in the in the publication order. Right. And it's um, kind of interesting sure. to read it as the author as it unfolded for the author. Right. But then it's also interesting to read it in the canonical order as right. well. And we see how people end up taking um positions on things that yes. frankly don't really matter <laughs> because either order is fine. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but um, there is something to be gained by reading it um, in the canonical order as well. Mm -hmm. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is probably the most read of all of the series, don't you think? Yeah, for sure. It's yeah. the first one I would ever encountered. Yeah. Yeah. It's and usually the first one. Yeah. And if you like it, you'll go on. If you don't, that'll probably be where you end. Right. It was in fifth yeah. grade when a, in, in a secular school back yeah. at Fritz Elementary School. I don't, I can't tell what year that was, but it must have been in the 70s um, that my fifth grade teacher read it to us. And I was absolutely enthralled with it. Mm -hmm. Had no idea it was connected to Christianity at the yep. time. Yeah. Well, when we went into this one, I was kind of like, eh, I'm bored because I've read that one so many times. I'm not. But we'll read it. We'll go through it in order. And then I ended up discovering new treasures that I never even yes. thought about before. It was really exciting, actually. <laughs> it, it was, was really exciting for me to see your excitement as yeah. we read through it. Yeah, exactly. Because I knew you saw it as kind of like, here we go again. Yeah. Um, and of course, our reactions to this play on the movies, too, because the movies were so <laughs> awful. <laughs> and the books are so much better. Yeah, than, you're going to get in trouble. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, so first of all, the author we know is C.S. Lewis, and it was the first written of right. the series. Right. And and we've read quite extensively on Lewis in terms of biography, mm-hmm. um, and not just his own, but other biographies. We just we just finished earlier this year biography of the Inklings, which included C.S. Lewis, Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, Charles Williams, Tolkien, and Tolkien. Right. So the 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 four of them. Yeah, and and it was called what was it. The Fellowship, mm-hmm. The Literary Lives of the Inklings, okay. Philip and Carol Zaleski. Philip and Carol Zaleski. That's what it was. Highly recommended. Mm-hmm. It radically altered our understanding of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Not so much of, of Tolkien, but it was yeah. interesting on Tolkien. Yeah, it was. And and the other two <laughs> the other two members of the fellowship. Of the Inklings. It was um um really eye opening yeah. because Owen Barfield was, if he was a Christian, was a very odd Christian. Mm-hmm. And, and Charles Williams, too. And Charles Williams <laughs> was, wow, mm-hmm. uh, way out there. Mm-hmm. And interesting that that this group of men produced... Got along, even. Yeah. Because they were so different from each other. So very different, mm-hmm. yeah. And yet had a had a really close friendship amongst them. Or yeah. rivalries as well, because Tolkien did not like Charles Williams, Charles Williams. Yeah. <laughs> and for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> Jenny and I didn't like Charles Williams no, either. No. We read his one his one work, The mm-hmm. Place of the Lion, mm-hmm. and it was interesting, enlightening, yeah. but it, it's really problematic from a Christian perspective. Yeah. I think yeah. both both Barfield and Charles Williams were very. Odd and mm-hmm. problematic, I exactly. would say. <laughs> Maybe Barfield was a little less. Yeah. Although in different ways, because yeah, Barfield was way out there too. Yeah, that is, that's right. I forgot he had his, I forgot about what he had. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So, okay. Um, we were saying that this is the one that was written. Lying the Witch in the Wardrobe was the one that was written first. The very first one written. When was it written again? It was, well, it was published in 1950. And, and that's right. What was... What and it was, would have been read on the Inklings amongst yeah, the Inklings they would have. as he was writing it. And and what was his? He had a vision or a right. He, he actually he, said uh, yeah. that the entirety of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe emerged from a picture in his mind mm-hmm. of a fawn carrying packages with a <laughs> an umbrella over him mm-hmm. in the snow, mm-hmm. and that was the initial. And he said it had nothing to do with Christianity. Right. It had nothing to do with much of anything. It mm-hmm. was just that picture in his mind from which in it fact, grew. And Lewis, everything else grew up around it. As and Lewis wrote. said that's how he always wrote. Right. He always wrote because he would see pictures. Right. In his mind. In the Inklings, we read that. Right. That, or was it in Surprise by Joy? I don't know. And we've read so many of his essays, too, on this. So it's but he talked hard about, to separate them all out. Yeah. He talked about how he would see pictures. Right. And that's what that's what inspired him to write. Right. So The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, chapters one through five. Is what we figured we would cover yeah. this time. And those right. five chapters, the reason why is because that's when they were, the children are in our world, going to Narnia, and coming back. Right. They weren't fully in Narnia quite yet. Right. And then in chapter so, six begins the full immersion in Narnia. Right. Right, for the children. Yeah. How many right. chapters, do you know how many chapters there are? Um, I think there were 16 chapters. Okay, so I'm this not is, sure about 
I was just wondering if it was halfway through. It's like a third. Yeah. In chapter one, the children find themselves being exported from from London, from London during World War II to yes. to to keep them safe from the bombings. Right. And they end up in the country with a professor and a very large house. Right. It's actually it's actually interesting that we talk about that now mm-hmm. because we've we've dealt with the London bombings in the Churchill speeches that right. we've been recording That's right. mm-hmm. on on simple gifts. Mm-hmm. And so the sort of contemporary thing that's happening here is World War II is occurring and the children are being taken out of London because of the Nazi bombings of London. And right. it's interesting that we were doing all of this at the same yeah, time. At the same time as you were yeah, you're reading of Winston, Winston Churchill. Right. Telling the the Englishmen to be strong and brave and right. courageous throughout. So if you're interested in the history, mm-hmm. go to our Simple Gifts podcast and listen to the speeches by Winston Churchill. And you'll you'll get a better feeling for the context of the children leaving London and going to Professor Kirk's home in the country. And who is Professor Kirk? And Professor Kirk, of course, is our old friend Diggory. From, from the, the first from book. From the magician's nephew. The magician's nephew. The first book or the sixth book. First book in canonical order, sixth book in publication order. <laughs> so, so Professor Kirk is grown up. He right. has this house. Right. And of course, in the end of The Magician's Nephew. Although Lewis himself at that time when he wrote it mm-hmm. would have had no idea exactly. that's, that that's what he was going to if do. If you're reading it in public, reading, published. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So we know that in The Magician's Nephew at the end, we find out that Diggory had grown up and he the apple tree that had grown from the seeds of the apple he gave his mother right. had fallen down in our world. Right. And so he used the wood to make a wardrobe. Right. And then he says, Lewis says that comes in in another story. Right. Okay. And it comes in in this story because the wardrobe is where the children end up going to Narnia. But before right. the children end up going, Lucy, the youngest of the four children that were sent right. to the country Two brothers, two sisters. Edmund, Lucy, Peter, and Susan. Yeah. Peter and Susan, the oldest. Lucy and Edmund, the, the youngest. Yeah, Lucy's the very youngest. Right. She's the first one to get into the wardrobe. It's interesting to note then that the parallels between the magician's nephew and when Diggory and Polly are in Charn to right now at this point in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right, right. When Diggory and Polly get to the room of images where they find Jadis. It is Polly who is absolutely fascinated by the clothing in the room. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the mm-hmm. children are exploring the house. Right. And Lucy is is interested in, hey, what's in that wardrobe? Yeah. And, and yeah, Peter clothing? says, oh, just a wardrobe in that room. Nothing mm-hmm. to see here. And right. he and, and the other kids go on. But Lucy stays behind mm-hmm. and uh, and feels compelled to explore the wardrobe right right the clothing um (laughs) the possibility of clothing while peter just like diggory you know he didn't see he didn't he didn't see the the clothing in the room right diggory was interested in other things right um and and it's kind of like the story of pandora's box too Mm -hmm, exactly and that's where the whole adventure comes from but it is that sort of curiosity that that's being played on here Mm -hmm, exactly and so it was Mm-hmm. Lucy's curiosity as a daughter of Eve mm-hmm. 
that led her to explore the wardrobe right. and to all the adventures that followed. So Lucy enters the wardrobe, brushes past the clothes, and finds herself in a wintry wood by a lamppost. And saw that picture that we just talked about, mm -hmm. that Lewis said. The, the fawn, fawn. With packages in his hand and an umbrella over his head, shielding himself from the falling snow. Right. Um, and and Lucy, the lamp. Of course, go ahead. I was going to say the lamppost is the lamppost that <laughs> Jadis threw the threw at Aslan's head and bounced off and grew into a lamppost. Right. Yeah, because it was so fertile. Right. <laughs> okay, so she starts talking to this fawn, and the fawn takes her back to his to his fawn cave. Yeah, his fawn cave. <laughs> I guess that's what you would call it. Instead of a man cave, it's a fawn cave. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a cozy little place where he fed, he feeds her, he gives her some, he gives her tea. They talk to each other and then he starts to play a song and puts her to sleep. Right. And um I just want to stop real quick. I remember one of the things that tickled you was the fawn <laughs> when she when Lucy said where she was from. Yes. <laughs> and he, 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 go ahead, you. Well, I just, I remember this so well from my fifth grade teacher. The first time he read it to me, never heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, never heard of C.S. Lewis as a fifth mm -hmm. grade student at Fritz Elementary. And Mr. Litz read to us. And I remember so clearly him talking about the far country of Spare Um and, and the country of War Drobe. Right. Um, and, and that struck me so much as a fifth grade child of how brilliant this writer was, that he could take these things and make them into something so amusing and, and yet so clever. So, yeah, I, I found that very fascinating as a child. Did it make you think Hegelian? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Jenny loves to take me back to Hegel because everything goes back to Hegel for me. <laughs> During the day. <laughs> Although as a fifth grader, I had no idea who Hegel was. <laughs> Just like most of you still don't. <laughs> you knew there was a shadow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Hegel shadow. The, shadow. Actually, the witch does a fairly good job mm -hmm. of representing Hegelianism. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. So Lucy falls asleep. This song puts her to sleep. Right. She sees all sorts of or pictures. almost to sleep anyway. Yeah. Then she's, she wakes up and says, mm -hmm. oh, Mr. Thomas, thank you for my tea. But it's really time for me to be getting back. Because hours had gone by. And that's important. And it's very yeah. important what happens here because it lays the foundation for everything that follows. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mr. Thomas breaks down and tells her that he's been a very bad fawn. Right. That he's in the pay of the White Witch. What did Thomas say he had to do? He was in the pay of the white witch to turn over any child that came in. Right, and he clarified very early on that Lucy was a daughter of Eve. Right. That and, is a human being. And he was in the pay of the white witch to turn any daughter of Eve over, any son of Adam over right. to the white witch. Right. right. And so he had a crisis of conscience at that moment. And then he decided that, of course... He couldn't do it now that right. he met Lucy, mm -hmm. but he still felt himself a very bad mm -hmm. form. Yeah. And I wonder um, how much of that was because of his father, because he does say that his father would never have done anything like that. Right. Plus, he has that portrait of his father over the fireplace. I hate to bring in our friend Freud. Sigmund Freud. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to bring in Sigmund Freud. Yeah. 
But the, Freud talks about the superego. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that is image of our parents right. in our psyche. Right. And Tumnus looks back to his father and says, my yeah. father would never have done anything right. like this. Right. Turning over a child to the, the white witch. Exactly. Okay. Um, in, in many ways, then, it is the image of Tumnus's father, the, the traditional morality instilled in him in his soul, his psyche, that prevents him from following through with what the witch wants him to do now. Right. Um, the revered spot that his father's picture has over the mantelpiece, over the hearth, the, the burning heart of the home, right? If you remember my first poem to you, yeah. <laughs> I referred to that hearth because you are the hearth of of my life right and and that burning fire and you you had talked about that actually we corresponded about that in our in our texts and that was one of the images that caught me early on in our relationship that you had talked about your hearth fires burning low mm -hmm. and they're coming back to life in our love mm -hmm. restored my faith in the traditional things upon which Western society had been built that I had let slip right. for so long. And, and Tumnus's father hangs over that mantelpiece right. as a representation of the strength of the traditional home, mm -hmm. of the values of traditional people, which are incredibly important to C.S. Lewis. Right. Uh, and Tumnus's cave represents the home. The hearth fires represent the traditional values and beliefs. And the father figure always, of course, points to God, right. but also points to God in us that prevents us from falling prey to the evil temptations all around us. Right. Those, those traditional guards are what keep a society and the people in the society within the, within the guardrails mm -hmm. that God has placed before us. Um, he calls himself a kidnapper. He's not a kidnapper because he's never done it before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As he said, Lucy is the first one he's ever met. Right. And Lucy says, but I'm sure you would never do anything like that. And he says to her, don't you understand, daughter of Eve? You are the one that I'm doing it to. Right. And this, of course, unnerves Lucy, mm -hmm. which brings us to the end of, of that chapter. Chapter two. And you're going to read it? I don't think you're a bad fawn at all, said Lucy. I think you're a very good fawn. You're the nicest fawn I've ever met. Oh, oh, you wouldn't say that if you knew, replied Mr. Tumnus between his sobs. No, I'm a bad fawn. I don't suppose there ever was a worse fawn since the beginning of the world. But what have you done? asked Lucy. My old father now, said Mr. Tumnus. That's his picture over the mantelpiece. He would never have done a thing like this. A thing like what? said Lucy. Like what I've done, said the fawn. Taken service under the white witch. That's what I am. I'm in the pay of the White Witch. The White Witch? Who is she? Why, it is she that has got all Narnia under her thumb. It is she that makes it always winter. Always winter, and never Christmas. Think of that. How awful, said Lucy. But what does she pay you for? That's the worst of it, said Mr. Tumnus with a deep groan. I'm a kidnapper for her. That's what I am. Look at me, daughter of Eve. Would you believe that I'm the sort of fawn to meet a poor, innocent child in the wood, one that had never done me any harm, and pretend to be friendly with it, invite it home to my cave, all for the sake of lulling it asleep and then handing it over to the white witch? No, said Lucy. I'm sure you wouldn't do anything of the sort. But I have, said the fawn. Well, said Lucy rather slowly, 
for she wanted to be truthful and yet not be too hard on him. Well, that was pretty bad, but you're so sorry for it that I'm sure you'll never do it again. Daughter of Eve, don't you understand, said the fawn. It isn't something I have done. I'm doing it now, at this very moment. What do you mean, cried Lucy, turning very white. You are the child, said Tumnus. And, okay, that's that's how it ends, mm-hmm. other than the fact that he ends up taking her back and showing her to the, where she Going needs to go back to the wardrobe. Mm-hmm. But that exemplifies everything we just said. Exactly. And you know what? Um, I was thinking we haven't mentioned how the White Witch, who the White Witch is. She's Jadis. Right. From, so, you know, we haven't said anything about that. <laughs> that's true. The White Witch is, is, is the queen that we met from Charn. Right. Um, in book six, right. Um, the magician's or nephew. In canonical order, book one. Right. <laughs> and the other thing that we haven't mentioned is when we left Narnia in the magician's nephew, it had just been created. Now the witch had ruled for yeah a hundred years. Did they say? For, yeah, at least for, for a hundred years. Time. I think that's what and she had about. caused. Right. All of Narnia to be under this winter. Right. So the entire, the tree that had kept her out had grown old and died yeah. and passed on. And so she could come in and take over. Right. So, yeah. Um, I think it's interesting here, and I guess worth noting, that Lucy wanted to be truthful. Right. In other words, she wanted to balance truth and mercy. Mm-hmm. And that's very godlike exactly. of, a, of a small child. Mm-hmm. To recognize that um, we need both, mm-hmm. she needed to be truthful with Mister Tumnus that he right. was doing, in fact, a very bad thing. Right, and yet to be wise, wise as a serpent, and as harmless as a dove. That's yes. the um, merciful part, right? The that mercy you were just part about there. to say, right? So the chapter ends with Lucy tumbling back out of the wardrobe, right. having and been gone in her mind for, for, for many, many for hours. hours. Right. And she said, I'm here. I've come back. I'm all right. Mm-hmm. And it was only a couple of minutes. Yeah, by the by the children's, other and, children's reckoning. And her brothers and sister were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and they didn't know what to make of her because, for one, Lucy doesn't lie. Right. They know her character. Right. And for two... She's talking about this crazy story with details. Right. But it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Right. Right. And that's how chapter two ends. And we also see as chapter two ends that Edmund has started showing showing himself to be a spiteful, spiteful person. Um, He has had as yet no experience himself with the wardrobe. Which will come in the next chapter. Mm -hmm. In chapter three. But he makes fun of her mercilessly Mm -hmm. through this. The other two, Peter and Susan, are a little more indulgent, although concerned. They're they're mature. They right. they kind of they're teen they're heading into their teens and they're right. starting to act like mother and father. Right. But Edmund is actually quite nasty right. with Lucy. Right. And so chapter three starts and um they're kinda of like yeah, they're hanging out. Um and then one day comes again when they decide to play hide and seek and this time Edmund gets in as well. Edmund follows Lucy. He right. sees Lucy go in, and then he follows her in. Right. He kind of follows her in with the intent to to, to, to pester, her. yeah, yeah, to, ta- to, to be tease nasty. her. And Lucy's ahead, so she ends up with Tumnus. 
Right. She she and, goes directly to Tumnus. And Edmund's alone. Right. He's alone now. Right. And who does he meet up with? He hears bells coming. Right. And, and he sees a sledge pulling mm -hmm. up with a white lady and a dwarf driving. Right. And um, this, of course, is the white witch. Right. Jadis. She's... We didn't know Jadis at this moment. And Lewis mm -hmm. himself didn't, didn't know even it would know. be Jadis when right. he was writing it. Right. But is indeed the queen of Narnia. Right. So the witch, it's funny how the witch is attracted to what she sees in Edmund. Do you know what I'm saying? She sees the 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 naughtiness in him. Mm. the 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 way she could use him right just like almost like um you know the witch is practical she sees how edmund is a lot like uncle andrew right yeah yeah evil knows evil the witch can see someone that she can use mm -hmm. someone that she can manipulate right to do what she wants she sees that quickly in edmund mm -hmm. i wonder how she would have dealt we I mean, we're never given this question of yeah. course uh, or the answer to this I wonder what, how she would have dealt with someone like Lucy, Lucy, who would have been much more resistant to her charms. Exactly. Exactly. And so she's practical and she's concerned with the prophecy, you know, what she knows and how could she use it. Right. Or how right. will she use this information? Right. Jadis is a very smart, very clued in person. She's aware of what's going on. She's aware of the, of the prophecies. I was right? just going to say, so, what what was she concerned with? Go ahead. She was concerned that the prophecy said that her reign would end when the four thrones at Ker Paravel are filled with, with two, four, sons, two sons of Adam and, and two, two daughters, daughters of Eve. Eve. Four. Yes. So she knows that it requires four to fill the thrones mm -hmm. in order to fulfill the prophecy. Right. And so what does she do? She starts calculating, right? Right. And immediately and calculating kind of does her in yeah her own calculations instead, kind of do her in instead of um killing edmund what does she do she seeks to use him right so that she can get all four rather than just take care of the one right and if she would have done away with just one of them there would not have been four. the prophecy would not have been fulfilled right right yeah. so that that speaks to god's wisdom and understanding of the foe right right Satan may very well plot and plan and try to, to work things out to his advantage. Mm -hmm. But as we learn from Romans 8.28, God works all things right. together for good. And that includes the evil plans of, of men mm -hmm. and of demons. Right. And so she changes suddenly. Right. So she starts <laughs> out pretty harsh with mm -hmm. Edmund. Are you, an, are you a son of Adam? Are you, in fact, a boy, a human? An idiot. And, and then she calls him an idiot. I see whatever, that you are an idiot. Whatever you may be. Whatever else you may be, you are an idiot. <laughs> we all know people like that, right? Who are exactly. just so plain spoken. And uh, I like plain spoken people, actually. Mm -hmm. But I don't like plain spoken evil people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so to, to get more information from him, she offers him... Turkish delight. Yeah, enchanted food. And, and why? Because enchanted food gives her a way of controlling Edmund. Right. right. right? Because once you're under the witch's power, you have given up an awful lot of the, your own free will. Right. right. And also, it's the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. Right. And then she appeals to the lust of life by the appealing to life. his, or yeah, the pride of life. She appeals to his vanity. 
Right. Mm-hmm. I will make you a prince and ultimately mm-hmm. a king. And I'll right. make your sister sisters and brother courtiers right. underneath, underneath you. Underneath you. Right. <laughs> um, if you will serve me and do what I ask of you, mm-hmm. you must bring them to me. Right. Um, but like we said, had she been smart, right. really smart, right. she could have ruined the prophecy by just killing Edmund. Exactly. But she wanted the whole ball of wax. Right. <laughs> um, she did. She wasn't content with just one of them. She wanted all four. Right. Right. Under her control. And so she gives him instructions to bring all of them to her. To her castle. Right. Yes. And then, and then her the wonderful plan of Edmund becoming her like a son to her will take place. Right. And they will all serve Edmund. And it's worth noting too that the <clears throat> the Turkish delight is that is very much like the fruit that she herself plucked, plucked. illicitly from right. the garden. Right. It's like I promise you, as she said to Diggory, that I will give you something that will make you happy all your life. Right. That's what the Turkish delight represents exactly. to Edmund. And it is always fruit that is illicitly plucked. Mm-hmm. God gives us good things and and evil twists them. And what does it say later? Right at the end of this chapter, it says that Edmund didn't feel so well. Yes. From the Turkish delay. That's right. Okay. He, 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 she leaves, he meets back up with Lucy. Right. Um, and, and in their discussion, it says that he wasn't feeling so hot in his stomach (laughs) from all the Turkish delay. And then finding out that, the person he had talked to was a witch. He didn't reveal that to Lucy that he talked to anybody. Right. But she says to her. So he's to, deceptive too. Yeah, she says to Another him. sign. Right. She says to she says to Edmund that there's a witch that's making it winter, and so you know. And he, that everyone in Narnia hates her. Right. And what does he say? He says, "You know what, fawns? They'll say anything. <laughs> you know, you can't really believe fawns. Yeah. They'll say anything. <laughs> he's he's always playing the one who knows, right? Right. Exactly. And I can't help but think that's that is Marxism. Mm-hmm. The Marxists always claim to know right. better, right? Right. It's actually Hegelianism. Sorry, here we go again, folks. <laughs> I know Jenny's laughing at me about that. I take everything back to Hegel, yes. but it's very much that. Mm-hmm. It's like they claim to know what." They can't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we learned this lesson from Socrates. We human beings are in- incredibly ignorant creatures. Right. And when we pretend to know, we get ourselves in all kinds right. of trouble. And I remember as a kid reading this book, thinking to myself, how does how can he get away with saying, you know how fawns are, when he's never met a fawn? <laughs> and why didn't Lucy say to him, how do you know when you never met a fawn? <laughs> It's funny that those questions never occur to kids, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was funny when, when everyone was... knows. Yes. <laughs> really? How many fawns have you met, Edmund? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so picking up on what you said, the, the chapter ends with I say, said Lucy, you do look awful, Edmund. Don't you feel well? I'm all right, said Edmund. But this was not true. <laughs> he was feeling very sick. <laughs> Come on then, said Lucy. Let's find the others. What a lot we shall have to tell them, and what wonderful adventures we shall have now that we are all in it together. And here is the part that makes every child, especially me when I was a girl reading this, made me so angry. Oh, it it, <laughs> it, makes it me fires so... me up and it makes yes. me so sad. <laughs> this is chapter five. Um they get back and you think, Hooray! 
Lucy's going to be vindicated. Right. And what does Edmund do? He turns on her, betrays her. Peter, Susan, it's all true. Edmund has seen it too. There is a country you can get into through the wardrobe. Edmund and I both got in. We met one another in there, in the wood. Go on, Edmund, tell them all about it. <sighs> What's all this about, Ed? said Peter. And now we come to one of the nastiest things in this story. <laughs> Up to that moment, Edmund had been feeling sick because of the witch's food, and sulky because of his own character, mm -hmm. and annoyed with Lucy for being right. <laughs> Nothing like truth exactly. to get a liar feeling rotten. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But he hadn't made up his mind what to do. When Peter suddenly asked him the question, he decided all at once to do the meanest <laughs> and most spiteful thing he could think of. He decided to let Lucy down. Tell us, Ed, said Susan. And Edmund gave a very superior look, <laughs> which is what they always do. Uh -huh. As if he were far older than Lucy. There was really only a year's difference. And then a little snigger and said, Oh, yes, Lucy and I have been playing, pretending that all her story about a country in the wardrobe is true. Just for fun, of course. There's nothing there, really. Poor Lucy gave Edmund one look and rushed <laughs> out of the room. And this absolutely devastates me. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, for Lucy's sake, mm -hmm. but also for Edmund's. <laughs> it is interesting that in Dante's Inferno, mm -hmm. Dante reserves the deepest level of hell for the betrayers. Right. And I, I identify with Edmund on that. Mm -hmm. It's like I turned my back on Christ, too, at one point and, and sided with the enemy. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when I see Edmund throughout the rest of the Chronicles of Narnia, recognizing his error... Mm -hmm. And doing what he needs to do to make recompense, right. it always rips me up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm not crying right now. Quit making fun <laughs> of me. <laughs> um, Edmund, he he kind of reminds me of people who, well, I would say like scientists or or people who specialize in the deepest, deepest magic, the deepest parts of science, and they can see in their science that there has to be a creator or designer of everything. They know it. They've experienced it. They see it. They observe it. But they deny for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, this goes exactly mm -hmm. to the evidence, evidence and faith that, mm -hmm. that last series that we did on the Christian right. atheist, that when we look honestly at our human experience, right. We can't help but see that there is a God indicated. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't, I mean, it's, it's not an argument for the existence of God. It mm -hmm. could be that that's all false. It could be. Mm -hmm. But if that's true, then our lives make no sense. Right. And truly, we are adrift in the universe, and there's no reason for us to believe that reason is good. Right. Um, and science, that science and that reason can reveal any truth to us. But it, that does not, it just doesn't seem to work. Mm -hmm. And not only does it not work, in terms of actual playing out of the evidence, what actually happens in human existence, we seem to be able to find truth. Now, whether or not we can, 
I, I don't know the answer to that. But it sure seems to work. And if it works, there must be something lying behind it. Right. So Edmund is scolded by his brother, by Peter. Oh, yeah. For, Peter gets very angry with him. Right. Justifiably so. Yeah. Not for betraying Lucy, but for what Peter views as him provoking Lucy. And being spiteful. Right. And so how does Edmund respond? He's like surprised. Look here, said Peter, turning savagely on him. Shut up. You've been perfectly beastly to Lou ever since she started this nonsense about the wardrobe. And now you go playing games with her about it and setting her off again? I believe you did it simply out of spite. But it's all nonsense, said Edmund, very taken aback. You know, it's, it's like Peter sees him for what he is. Mm -hmm. He doesn't actually see him for the betrayer because... Peter himself is kind of wondering what's going on with mm -hmm. Lucy. Um, and, and Susan, as well, is concerned. Right, right. Um, but he, they don't see But they that. do see Edmund for what he is. They don't see that in Edmund, his right. concern or anything. Well, and, and, and in their conversation with the professor a little bit later on. Which is what we're going to talk about next. We reveal that they tend not to think so highly of Edmund. Right. Because, after all, <laughs> brothers and sisters... No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're exactly. siblings quite well. Exactly. It, it, it just on this point, mm -hmm. when I was at the point of trying to decide whether or not again to turn back to Christ, right. one of the things that convinced me in, in Scripture that Jesus was who he claimed mm -hmm. was that his brothers, right. James and Jude, acknowledged him to be divine. Right. Exactly. And that's like, really? Those who know you best, those who are your siblings, it's like, right. I would never acknowledge any right. of my siblings to be divine. And he was also the <laughs> oldest brother. Right. <laughs> and and I knew, uh, like my oldest brother, Donald, as, as, as good as I know, as well as I know him, mm -hmm. I would never acknowledge him to be div right. <laughs> divine. Right. Exactly. Unless there was something really special. different, mm -hmm. special. About Something him. divine about him. Right. <laughs> and, and that to me was like, wow, if these, his brothers, are acknowledging him not just to be a good man, right. but to be the God of the universe, the creator and the divine word, right. that says something pretty powerful. Exactly. Exactly. So we move on now to Peter and Susan decide that they're going to go to an adult to figure out what to do because they can't figure out what to do with Lucy. <laughs> yes. So they go to the professor to talk to him about It's important Lucy. which adult they go to, isn't it? Right. Because most adults probably would not have done what the professor did, right. who is Diggory, right. after all. Right. And he knows about Narnia. Mm -hmm. they, tell, they tell the professor the goings-on with Lucy. Right. What they've been observing and, and experiencing with her. So <laughs> he gets... The professor gets quiet, and then he says, how do you know what she's saying is not true? Right. So we can actually pick up there on page 24. Okay. That yeah. Good. He says, how do you know that your sister's story is not true? Oh, but, began Susan, and then stopped. Anyone could see from the old man's face that he was perfectly serious. Then Susan pulled herself together and said, but Edmund said they had been only pretending. That is a point, said the professor, which certainly deserves consideration. Very careful consideration. 
For instance, if you will excuse me for asking the question, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as the more reliable? I mean, which is the more truthful? That's just the funny thing about it, sir, said Peter. Up till now, I'd have said Lucy every time. And what do you think, my dear, said the professor, turning to Susan. Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter. But this couldn't be true. All this about the wood and the fawn. One of the great things about the person that they go to, Professor Kirk, is that he is represented for Lewis mm -hmm. as his teacher, the, the great knock. Right. Which is um, from, he shows up in Surprised by Joy. You want to... In, in Lewis's autobiography, mm -hmm. which is essentially his story of his conversion, he talks about the great knock. And the great knock was an atheist, but he was a professor of profound logical right. structure. Right. And he taught Lewis to think. In fact, I think Lewis would himself say that his own logical propensities were built by the great knock. Mm -hmm. And Professor Kirk really is the sort of mirror of Lewis's favorite professor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he says, that is a point, said the professor, which certainly deserves consideration, very careful consideration. So this is the voice of logic mm -hmm. speaking. For instance, if you will excuse me for asking the question, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as the more reliable? I mean, which is the more truthful? Which That's, goes with the evident. Right, the evident. Mm -hmm. it's, it's which one of these, from your experience, can you trust right. to tell the truth? Right. And clearly, the character has revealed themselves. Mm -hmm. Edmund is not a truthful person. Right. Lucy is. Right. And so this is saying, okay, who are you going to believe then? Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter, but this couldn't be true. All this about the wood and the fawn. And now listen to what the professor says. That's more than I know. And a charge of lying against someone whom you have always found truthful is a very serious thing. A very serious thing indeed. Mm -hmm. Right. So you are doubting your sister Lucy when she has been the soul of truth and believing Edmund when he has showed himself to be quite characteristically flawed. Right, exactly. We were afraid it mightn't even be lying, said Susan. We thought there might be something wrong with Lucy. Madness, you mean, said the professor, quite coolly. Oh, you can make your minds easy about that. One has only to look at her and talk to her to see that she is not mad. But then, said Susan, and stopped. She had never dreamed that a grown-up would talk like the professor, and didn't know what to think. Logic, said the professor, half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? And this is, of course, one of the great themes that C.S. Mm -hmm. Lewis develops. Exactly. That our schools are utterly failing right. to teach basic thought, basic logical principles mm -hmm. to our people. It was clear. And it has only gotten worse right. and since Lewis's time. it was clear during time. his time he was disgusted with the state of education. I mean, right. he put it in this one. He put it in the silver chair. Right. He put it in Prince Caspian. Right. Yeah, we're going to see it mm -hmm. as a theme developing in the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. But even in Lewis's theoretical is, works. Right. 
in his essays, mm -hmm. in mere Christianity, and especially the abolition of man, mm -hmm. Lewis develops this utter failure of the educational institution right. to teach basic things. And this, for me, has been clearly demonstrated. I trace this in terms of its history back to Hegel, changing our history, changing our, our pedagogy, changing what it is we teach. All right. So it's clear that he has, um, he has something against the state of education. Yes. Lewis is deeply concerned right. about education. Professor Kirk goes on to say there's three possibilities. Yes. Right? Why don't they teach logic at this school, these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment, then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. And this is like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. Right. If you've eliminated all of the probabilities, mm -hmm. then all that's left is... Then all that's left is the most improbable, mm -hmm. but it's the only thing that could possibly be the answer. Right. That's exactly then that's the answer. That's exactly She's telling said. the truth. Yeah. And that's the one thing they are like not willing to face. Exactly. Even though logic dictates it. Right. But how could it be true, sir, said Peter. Why do you say that? asked the professor. Well, for one thing, said Peter, if it was true, why doesn't everyone find this country every time they go into the wardrobe? I mean, there was nothing there when we looked. Even Lucy didn't pretend there was. What has that to do with it? said the professor. Well, sir, if things are real, they're there all the time. Are they? said the professor. <laughs> You'll have to excuse me on this point, but as a philosophy professor, I love that moment. Mm -hmm. It's like, really? This is the question of metaphysics, right? We need to look carefully at what it is we think is true, because what we think is true tends to influence what we actually see, exactly. what we actually experience, and tends to act as a filter mm -hmm. on reality. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's exactly what happened here. They filtered their reality. But there was no time, said Susan. Lucy had no time to have gone anywhere, even if there was such a place. She came running after us the very moment we were out of the room. It was less than a minute, and she pretended to have been away for hours. That is the very thing that makes her story so likely to be true, said the professor. If there really is a door in this house that leads to some other world, and I should warn you that this is a very strange house, and even I know very little about it. If, as I say, she had got into another world, I should not be at all surprised to find that the other world had a separate time of its own so that however long you stay there, it would never take up any of our time. On the other hand, I don't think many girls of her age would invent that idea for themselves. If she had been pretending, she would have hidden for a reasonable time before coming out and telling her story. But do you really mean, sir, said Peter, that there could be other worlds all over the place, just round the corner, like that? Nothing is more probable, said the professor. 
taking off his spectacles and beginning to polish them, while he muttered to himself, I wonder what they do teach them at these schools. But what are we to do, said Susan. She felt that the conversation was beginning to get off point. My dear young lady, said the professor, suddenly looking up with a very sharp expression at both of them, there is one plan which no one has yet suggested, and which is well worth trying. What's that? said Susan. We might all try minding our own business, said he. And that was the end of the conversation. It is a very odd conversation yeah. <laughs> with someone that we would respect as an authority. Mm -hmm. right? He's demanding that we look at things coldly, rationally. Right. And yet the conclusions that he comes to are strange for exactly. most of us. Certainly strange for the children. Mm -hmm. And yet coldly logical. Right. And I think, actually, that that is something very characteristic of Lewis himself, exactly. right? Oftentimes, logic will lead us to strange conclusions. Mm -hmm. And if we're not prepared to accept them, then we're not being logical creatures. Mm -hmm. We're not following what God has given us in terms of our nature. Right. And I think the Christian Atheist, our podcast, right is devoted to exactly that sort of logical process right. of trying to find the truth, no matter how difficult it is to accept, no matter how hard it is in the face of all of the world's reasonings. To, yeah, it, it's going to fly in the face of much that is conventional wisdom. Right. And yet that doesn't mean it's not true. Right. Truth can be very surprising. And that is one of Lewis's central points. Right. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Yes. Thank you for finding that. You're welcome. Yes, that's fantastic. That's exactly what I was trying to point mm -hmm. to. Right. Logic. Logic. What are they teaching these children at these schools these days? Mm -hmm. James Lindsay might say that. Right? Yeah, exactly. And certainly I make that claim. Mm -hmm. So we move on then. In what chapter is this? This was chapter five. This is the end. That's right. Chapter in chapter six five. Comes and the children, they have to stay out of the way. Oh, that's right. The housekeeper gives tours of the house right. to the locals or to tourists. Right. And so the children have to stay out of the way. And so they try to stay out of the way. The housekeeper keeps approaching the same rooms that they're in. So eventually that pushes them into the room where the wardrobe, wardrobe is. Yep. So then they end up having, out of desperation, to climb into the, the all wardrobe. All of them. All four of them. And, and this is they... the beginning of the mutual, of the collective adventure mm -hmm. in Narnia. Right. And then that's when the scene changes to Narnia. Right. Completely. Right. Till the and... end when they come back. And it is there that we will pick up next mm -hmm. week. Exactly. All right. 